Hello, hello, and welcome to Maven America. Thank you so much for listening. Right now, this show is on hiatus between season one and season two, but these are extraordinary times. So I've cancelled my extensive list of cosmetic surgeries to come back with this short episode explaining just what the flip is going on at the White House and how people are reacting. This show is about immigration. It's usually immigrant stories told by the people who are living them. Today, most of those people are freaking out. Many US-born citizens are freaking out. And I am freaking out because my ex-husband, Donald Trump, and my fiance, Steve Bannon, have been very busy. There is a lot going on tonight, just over a year and a month since candidate Trump called for, and I quote here, a complete and total shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. President Trump today signed an executive order aimed at fulfilling at least part of that goal. President Trump is taking a first step towards keeping his signature campaign promises on immigration. The president tweeted last night, big day planned on national security. We will build the wall. I'm taping this on Tuesday, January 31st, and things are happening very quickly. But right now in immigration, here's what's going on. First up, the wall. Yeah, this looks, looks doable. Yeah, I mean, it looks doable, but not ideal. I just got these Stan Smiths. Oh no. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe over here. Five days before Trump announced this executive order to build a wall, I went to see, well, the wall. The one that already exists between Mexico and the US. I was in San Diego when I heard about this place called Friendship Park. Dan Watman from a group called Friends of Friendship Park agreed to show me around. I guess that makes me a friend of Friends of Friendship Park. I don't know, but the place is incredible. Friendship Park is on the U.S.-Mexico border and uh, the uh, southwestern corner of the United States, the northwestern corner of Mexico, um, right on the beach. It's been designated for cross-border contact. So there's people there every Saturday and Sunday that talk through the border fence. There's no real public transport to Friendship Park from San Diego. So we took a 30-minute car journey, and I asked Dan what we were going to see. Um, it's kind of a, a brown metal fence that's like 12 feet high, solid. Um, I, I, a lot of it was made out of uh, old landing mats from the Vietnam War and from the Iraq War. There are people that would have a beef with me saying this, but I, I really think it is what goes on at the border as far as the Department of Homeland Security and the enforcement is, is really a militarization of the border. And so... Um, well, who would have an issue with you saying that? Uh, border Patrol. <laughs> they look at it as like a enforcement that's necessary to, to protect our country. Um, and it's not militarization because there's no war, but their rhetoric and everything that they do is, is warlike. Yeah. So can Sorry. you describe where we're driving through now? Uh, we're getting close to the state park. We're right in the middle of um, the Tijuana Estuary, which is an internationally recognized ecological reserve. It's very beautiful around here. There's like horses mm-hmm. around us and a lot of greenery. Um, and then you look to the left and it's quite dramatic, that hill with the... The border the, wall, yeah. Yeah. Up on that, oh, they actually wow. built that mountain there. <laughs> to put that wall on top uh, before it was it was just yeah that was a valley so they scraped off the top of the hills here to fill it in at that point the department of homeland security congress had given them the authority to override 
any and all laws in order to continue this well. And um, so they overrode the, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, um, Endangered Species Act, and some 30-some-odd environmental laws to, to build the wall. So we just passed two, we just passed two border patrol trucks, yeah. I guess, um, and you guys shared like a friendly wave. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, just, they're just guys out here, whatever. Every individual is an individual, so I don't like try to, I try not to judge without getting to know them a little bit. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, this is it. We walked this muddy, almost impassable road that widened out onto a gorgeous sandy beach, deserted except for some Border Patrol agents zooming around on quad bikes. We trudged along the shore toward this enormous fence that stretched right out into the sea. They put like a mesh on top of the primary barrier, so you can't, you'll see it when we get up close, you can't really, you can't touch the people on the other side except maybe the tips of your, your fingers. Dan described the scene beautifully, although it was really windy on the beach and I don't have any audio training. He told me that you have to decide whether to look at the mouths or the eyes of the people on the other side of the fence and only your fingertips can touch. Sometimes the agents let people stand in the garden section of the park where there is no mesh, but in that case there is a one and a half metre distance maintained at all times. I wasn't allowed to tape at the park, but I chatted to some people there on both sides of the fence. Some were Mexican tourists who'd come to check it out. Others were parents catching up with their children for a few precious hours. One mother had flown five hours and taken a bus for two to get a glimpse through the heavy grid of her 22-year-old son. She can't get a visa, and he lives in LA and is a DACA recipient, afraid to leave the country right now. I didn't want to invade their space, what little they had of it, through this metal grid. And I'm not being dramatic here, it is one of the most poignant sights you can imagine. A mother unable to hold her child? Nope, I couldn't. I left them be and waited outside the gate. That's where I met this man. My name is Enrique Morones and I'm the director and founder of Border Angels, Ángeles de la Frontera. Border Angels is a charitable organization that focuses on migrant rights and the prevention of immigrant deaths along the border. The U.S.-Mexican border is 3,000 kilometers. A third of it has wall, wherever there are cities. San Diego, Tijuana, wall. Where there's no cities, there's desert and mountains, that's where the people cross. So what happens is the people that are crossing, the only way they can, because they cannot get a visa, so they risk their lives crossing through the desert, uh, three months ago, we found two bodies here, right here at Friendship Park. They tried to swim across the ocean. As we've talked about on this show before, the past few years have seen more Mexican people leaving the U.S. than entering. We are no longer the largest group of people crossing without papers. Now it's actually Central Americans. But whether you're Central American, Haitian, Mexican, these are human beings. And there should be a way that they can come in through the front door because the U.S. has a lot to do with these policies that force the people to leave. So what happens here is the United States goes around the world preaching human rights, yet it has this wall that leads to deaths. And as you know, the, the new president wants to build more walls. That'll cause more death. The human cost of more walls along the border is yet to be measured. The financial cost is on the rise, but Trump and his supporters have already thought that through. And who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico. Who's going to pay for the wall? Mexico. Who's going to pay for the wall? Naturally, the Mexican president came running to work out a payment plan. 
No wait. Enrique Peña Nieto refused to even meet, and the U.S. taxpayer is paying. 12 to $15 billion is the conservative estimate. And by conservative, yes, I mean Mitch McConnell. We are moving ahead. As the speaker pointed out, with what, roughly uh, 12 to $15 billion. So we intend to address the, the ball issue ourselves. Friday, January 27th, was Holocaust Remembrance Day, a time to remember people like Anne Frank and her family, who had applied for asylum in the US, but like so many Jewish refugees, were denied and left to face their deaths in Europe. So on that day, Trump announced an indefinite ban on refugees from Syria, a temporary ban on refugees from Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Somalia and Yemen. He also placed a travel ban on people from these seven Muslim-majority countries, even if they were lawful permanent residents here in the US, green card holders. Immediately, this ban threw the country into massive confusion and fierce resistance. People began to gather at airports around the country, and I wanted to know what was going on. And also, I felt like spending $4 on a bottle of water. So, I headed out to San Francisco airport. There were already around 200 people outside the International Arrivals Terminal holding up signs and chanting, that crowd would grow throughout the afternoon and evening to more than a thousand. The first person I spoke to was a young woman. She was standing quietly on the periphery of the demonstration and her eyes were full of tears. What are you thinking? Actually, I think that um, all Muslims are not terrorists and uh, so many students are struggling so hard. I want to say thank you to all Americans that they support, uh, people who are, who are looking for peaceful solutions to solve the problems. And there were so yeah. many Americans there. Like if you were casting a phone company commercial, you could have taken your pick. White, brown, black, disabled, queer. I know that because they had signs saying so. The intersectionality was remarkable, which is why I suppose I'm remarking on it. There were white guys in yarmulkes holding Jews from Muslims banners. There were little people holding signs saying, refugees welcome. There were big groups of Latinx kids blowing whistles down the escalators as they joined the throng. And black women in hijab, old couples holding each other as they balanced on ballards, and little kids running around with homemade cardboard signs that read, no ban, no wall, sanctuary for all. I went inside the terminal where there were anxious people waiting to pick up their friends and family from a flight due to land from Istanbul. How does that impact you as an American citizen and a brown person? What's happening now? Well, it doesn't feel great. Um, you know, as a US citizen, uh, I've always felt my rights are going to be respected in this country, but I know that it's a thin line and it wasn't our country that was affected this time or our country of national um, ancestry, but could just a well have been. Where are you from? Uh, Russia originally. I've been here a majority of my life now, so to see such actions from US government, I didn't think that was going to be possible in our lifetime at least. San Francisco airport serves Silicon Valley, whose response to Trump's ban is interesting for a host of reasons. One being that so many people working in tech come from all over the world. Like this man, Reza, a software engineer working in Mountain View. I'm Canadian. I was born in Iran. I'm here legally, but uh, 
given the recent um, executive order, my family can't visit me. I, my lawyers who are processing my case have said I shouldn't leave the country even though I'm here legally. And uh, I'm just here, you know, voicing my opposition to the executive order. I mean, I see so many people working in tech here from all over the world. It seems so counterproductive. It is. I feel like the decision he's made with this executive order is not very educated considering the positive contribution that a lot of immigrants make in the United States. So, you know, I had a lot of hopes coming down to the United States. Of course, for somebody with my background, this is a place to be, to prosper and really become successful and make a difference. You know, when I came down here, San Francisco Bay Area is a very welcoming place overall. And I, at no point did I feel like I was a foreigner or I was an outsider. Everybody was very nice. It was very different than everything I heard in the news. So to see that succeed and become like the voice of the executive branch in the United States, it was, it's a feeling of, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe, you know, this doesn't belong to me and perhaps um, I'll be better off in Canada or you know, maybe in Europe somewhere. You know, I, I would have no problem getting a job in Europe, but it, it still, you know, it does affect you emotionally to wake up one day and be in a completely different world. For many immigrants, particularly Muslims, this feeling of waking up in a different world, this sharp feeling that no matter how long you've been here, no matter how American you are, you do not belong, that came up again and again. This is Sana Salim, a local reporter covering the Bay Area. Uh, as a Muslim Pakistani living in America, I, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Like, I'm here to report on this, but I found myself a bit teary when standing in the crowd because this is the kind of solidarity that a lot of Muslims expected a, a long time ago. But it's heartening to see so many people come in, especially when they chanted, saying that, like, you know, Muslims belong here and that they deserve to, to be in this country. I'm supposed to be reporting on the subject, but yeah, it's just, it's very complicated because I've been very emotional about about this because it's now sinking in that my parents might never be able to come here or to visit me, um, to see my home or my uh, office or, yeah. So it's, it's, it's really complicated and very um, overwhelming. Sana was thinking too about the repercussions of the ban on other people around the world and in her hometown. I, I'm lucky that I live in San Francisco, but it's a bit triggering as well that there are so many people in this country that will actually shut their door on Syrian refugees, even after watching what's happening. They'll actually shut their door on, on Latinos that make such a, a huge part of California. They make San Francisco what it is. News of people being detained inside the airport spread and people began to surge inside the terminal. Across the country, the same thing was happening and lawyers showed up at airports armed with laptops and pantsuits and started working with the families of the people detained inside. Lawyers became the unlikely heroes of the day. And I found one. My name is John Crew, and uh, I am a former civil rights lawyer. I'm retired now, but still working on these issues. What do you make of today? Well, I think the, the, the most important thing, obviously, is people resisting quickly. If people understand that this event was called, on relatively a moment's notice, thousands of people to pour out 
and with similar events going on at JFK in New York and Chicago, and I don't even know where else, that this country isn't going to stand for it. I asked John if he was surprised by the breadth of the ban. No, I, honestly, I was not surprised. I think Donald Trump has been very clear, and as importantly, Steve Bannon has been very clear about who they are and what they planned. This is how autocrats try to consolidate power. They, they, they pit people one against the other, they use fear, and they try to move very quickly. But they were not counting on how quickly people are ready to resist and how fed up people are. As a former civil rights lawyer, what's your take on the, on the executive order? Well, I, I, I think it's unconstitutional. But our democracy has been weakened, and our institutions, including the courts, including the courts, are only going to have the nerve to act and to stand up to this consolidation of power if people continue to come out in the streets and resist. We have to create the atmosphere where not only the courts do the right thing, but where Congress does the right thing. On Saturday night, U.S. District Judge Anne Donnelly temporarily stopped the government from enforcing the ban on travellers who had arrived at airports with valid visas over the weekend. Cheers went up around the airport, as they did around the country. Despite this court order, not every Customs and Border Patrol unit complied, and even today, confusion remains. The latest is that even green card holders from the seven countries listed will face extra checks, and Syrians, like a mother and her two little children, on their way to join their dad in Connecticut after a three-year separation, well, they've been barred. Last night, President Trump fired Acting Attorney General Sally Yates after she ordered Justice Department lawyers not to defend this immigration order. At Maeve in America, we are working on season two. Our guests include Mohammed Zaza. He's a Syrian asylum seeker who works in a fancy luggage store with the cutest baby I've ever seen. I mean, the baby doesn't work there. He just, he has a really cute baby. And another guest coming up is Josemar Reyes. He's a young, queer, undocumented Mexican man who grew up in the hoods of San Jose after walking across the desert with his grandmother when he was just three years old. We are delighted to have these guests on our show, and we're lucky to have them in the country. Maven in America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. Thank you so much to everybody on the team for making this episode happen so quickly. Special thanks to Sana Salim from 48 Hills, Enrico Morones at Border Angels, and Dan Watman at Friends of Friendship Park. Check out their work and the Let Them Hug campaign that they're doing to allow separated families to hug. Photos and videos of what we talked about today are online and on social media at Maven America. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support. We'll be back with season two on February 14th. That's right, it's Valentine's Day and we love immigration. <laughs>